the Titanic. Do we have a picture of the Titanic? I believe we do. There, we, there it is. You know, if you say the name Titanic, almost everybody knows what you're talking about, don't they? Okay, thank you. Uh, and partially because of the movie that came out in 1998, that kind of reinvigorated the story and, uh, and the ship. That, that is a huge ship. If you were to put a seven, Boeing 747 beside it, it's three times as long as a Boeing 747. It took three years for it to build, to build it. In today's money, it would have cost about $400 million. I think it would have been more, but that's just a pure transfer of, of, of what money was then to now, to, to, to what it cost to build it. It was uh, billed as the unsinkable ship, but yet it never made one complete voyage before it ended up on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean with many, many, many of its people with it. I believe it was primarily because of a leadership failure. And then what we're going to look at tonight in Judges 2 is leadership failures. Judges 2, we're going to look at verses 6 through 15. And I think what you're going to see as we look at this story is we're going to see that uh, as goes the leaders, as goes uh, everything else. Let's begin with this. Leadership is huge. Leadership is huge. Uh, leadership is tremendously important. The, the captain uh, of the Titanic was a guy named John Edward Smith. I believe we have a picture of John Edward Smith, Captain Smith. Uh, we'll go back to him later. But, uh, boy, you can trace a lot of the Titanic beyond the bottom of the ocean to some decisions that this guy uh, made. But... Leadership's huge in every area of life. And I want to tell you this evening, everyone in here is a leader to some extent and somewhere in your life. Leadership, one definition of leadership, which is a good definition, is that leadership is simply influence. Leadership is simply influencing. At any point, in any place where you're influencing people, you are a leader. You're a leader at work, many of you are. If you're a mother or a father, you are a leader. If you're a grandparent, you're a leader. If you're nine years old and you play sports, you have an opportunity to be uh, a leader. You're a leader maybe in your extended family or in the community. Maybe you're a CEO or a leader here at the church. But all of us, listen, this is what's so important. All of us in some capacity are leaders. Let's look in verse 6 through 9. And the book of Judges is kind of weird because uh, it's going to go chronologically after this chapter. But uh, before this chapter 1 and 2, it kind of bounces back and forth. And this kind of bounces back to Joshua, which is after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun. I always think that's funny. Who is Joshua's daddy? Nun. It's N-U-N, not N-O-N-E. The servant of the Lord died at the age of 100. And verse 9 says, they buried him in his inheritance. Now, Joshua was a great leader, but I want to submit to you, and, and I'm not a good enough Old Testament scholar to be able to answer this completely, 
But did Joshua fumble the ball to some extent? I think that's, that's maybe that's possible. Look in verse 10 and 11. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Did you just hear what I read? Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Wow. Verse 10, when it says they knew not the Lord, it meant they didn't have familiarity. They did not have an understanding. They did not personally know God. In other words, what he's saying here is there grew up a generation after this great leader and these great people who were not followers of God. We would say they were not Christians. They did not have a personal relationship with God, and they didn't understand the things that God had done for them and their relatives. Wow. This is the disaster that sets the stage for the book of Judges, which is a bloody massacre, R-rated soap opera. Someone said, and I think this is true, a big part of leadership is setting the course. A leader sets the course, whether it's a mom or a dad, a pastor, a CEO, a coach, a teacher, a business person. A leader sets the course. A leader helps decide where you're going to go. And and what course the leader sets is where you're going to end up. Leadership is huge. John Maxwell is a great leadership authority, and he, he says this often. He says leadership is everything. I don't know if you agree with that completely, but I would say this. Leadership in every part of life is gigantic, if not everything. So here's the second thing this evening that spills from this. Spiritual leadership is the most important leadership. Now, I don't want you to put your Bibles down and go, well, he's talking about preachers and missionaries, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm absolutely not talking about that. Spiritual leadership is the most important leadership. Now, stay with me. Everyone is a leader to some extent, and every person is called to be a spiritual leader in whatever realm that they are in. Are you following me? When I say spiritual leadership is the most important, it absolutely is. If you believe heaven's real and hell's hot, spiritual leadership is the most important. And I hope I can convince you from what we see uh, later on in this sermon. Now, I want to jump. I want to give you some scriptures. You can write these down. You can look them on the screen. Leviticus ten eleven. This is God's word to the priest. You must teach the Israelites all the degrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. You've got to teach the word of God to these people. Deuteronomy four nine. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to who? Your children and their children after them. So you see parental in here, don't you? You saw the religious leaders. You see the parental. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Impress them on who? On your children. That's the Sunday school teacher's job. That's the pastor's job. It absolutely is. It's the parent's job. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Spiritual leadership, God was telling them, is the most important thing. And here's a funny little thing. Whether that write them on the door frames and wear them on your head and your, your bracelet were literal or not, a lot of the Jewish people took them literal. And, and they instilled today in Israel, uh, highly religious people wear a phylactery, which is basically a sweatband with a little box on it. And in that box is Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. And in some of the homes, you would find these scriptures written on the door frame. Now, I want to tell you, you want to do that, that's fine. But it's far more important that you've got it written here and here and that you're passing it on here and here. Because a lot of them in Jesus' day weren't doing that. Let's go to the Christian full understanding of this, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And this is going to be brutally hard, but I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now, that's the Great Commission. That's just piling on what everything else we've read, isn't it? God's saying in the Great Commission, make converts. A disciple first is a convert. Baptize them. After you baptize them, train them. Disciple them. You have to have evangelism before you have discipleship. But if you don't have discipleship before evangel- after evangelism, then you have converts who know nothing and who pass it not on. This didn't happen. In verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who did not know the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A generation is simply a cycle of lifetime. There's nothing mystical or, or, or hyper-spiritual about that. It's just a, it's a, it's a cycle of lifetime. And it says, these, these grew up who knew not the Lord. Listen, it, there's a total negation here. There grew up a group of people after their mom and dad and grandparents were died who were spiritually lost and derelict. And in verse 11 it says they, they did evil and they served the Baals. Baals is a term you hear a lot in the Old Testament. Let me define what a Baal is. A Baal is a, is a literally it means divine master or Lord. And Baals were many gods it used in many cultures. They used the name Baal. But it was primarily a weather or storm god in the Old Testament. We talked about Baal or Baals. Again, you find different names from different cultures of the Baals. But it was a weather or a storm god. Now, a few verses down, we're going to look at the, the goddess Ashtaroth, which was the goddess of love and fertility. And these... Israelites whose moms and dads had been delivered from and grandparents from Egypt who had walked through the Red Sea. Bad lessons, they had wandered in the desert and died. They got to this promised land and the walls of Jericho fall miraculously and God had provided and provided and provided. Here they are. Now they're adults and they don't know God personally and they don't know the ways of God. Listen, they've been taught to cook, to hunt. They had been taught how to, to fight. Moms and dads had been occupied with building homes, building forts, and building cities. And they had forgot to evangelize and disciple their own children. The most important thing that they could have done. But we've done the same thing, haven't we? Here's the scary thing. We're always on the cusp of this. 
Years ago, when I began to pastor, I was 22. And if I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. Son, I have grandkids older than you. Well, I know that. Now I'm beginning to hear, how old are you? Good grief. My grandfather's your age. Yeah. It's all circular. But you know, I remember when I, when I began to pastor at 22, I talked to a lady who was about 30. She'd been a three-time-a-week Baptist, been in church her whole life. She didn't know how to pray. I don't believe she was a Christian. She didn't know how to read her Bible. She'd been in church her whole life. She'd gone through all the programs at the Southern Baptist that we've put out for years. And she was spiritually derelict in her understanding of God. We have programs, we have uh, things that we push. Some of them are good, some of them may not be good. The bottom line is, are we teaching people how to be saved and how to grow up in Jesus Christ? This is the most important thing that we do. I, I get a, an email, a daily devotional from, it's called The Leadership of Jesus. And here's a quote from one of them I got this week. It says, uh, the leader is responsible, and this would apply to everything. We're applying it to spiritual leadership. They're responsible to help people understand what to do and to know how to do it. A leader's job is to help people understand what to do and how to do it and then manage their performance as they are doing it. Isn't that great? That's what a leader does. That's what a parent does, a teacher does. You tell people what to do and how to do it and why to do it, and then you manage the process of doing it. The problem that, that happened here, they just didn't do it spiritually. They may have done it in a thousand areas, but they didn't do it in the things of God. What a, how unbelievable is that? The most important thing we do as a church, obviously, but the most important thing you do in your life is you teach people how to know Christ and how to grow up in Christ. And here's the thing that's tough about this. This is more like farming than it is cramming for a test. How many of you have ever crammed for a test? Cramming for a test normally is the result of I didn't prepare much ahead of time. So the night before, I drink four pots of coffee and I stay up till 3 o'clock right? So I can spit it back out and then two weeks later not know anything that I've learned. How many of you would hope your neurosurgeon did not cram for test? <laughs> you, you don't want that, do you? Discipleship's like farming. How many of you have ever dabbled around a garden or a farm before? You don't go out in late August and go, man, oh, man, we need some corn. Good grief. We're going to kick some dirt back and put some corn seeds down. We're going to pour water on it and fertilizer, and we're going to pray, God, please, please let this grow. And then you come back two weeks later, and you're just picking beautiful uh, stalks of corn off that, is it? No, farming's hard. Farming is, as you, you go out in the spring, you've got to break the ground. Sometimes you have to break it a couple of times. And then you plant the corn. And then you come back and you have, to, you have to hoe or somehow you've got to weed in there to make sure that the corn doesn't get swallowed by the weeds. And you spray and you water. And if God doesn't send the water, you have to artificially, you have to bring in water. And then, then, four to five months later, you go out, what? And you get a harvest. See, that's why discipleship's hard. Evangelism's very hard because we're just scared to death of someone rejecting us. 
So we try to lead someone to Christ, and they say no, or they laugh at us. We go hide in our shell, and we don't ever want to do it again. Shame on us. Discipleship's hard because it just takes time and effort. It'd be great if we could do a six-hour seminar on how to grow for Jesus and be done with it every year. Wouldn't that be good? (laughs) But we can't do that. Someone said discipleship is not teaching a thousand things. It's teaching the basic things a thousand times. Isn't that the truth? And you try and teach people how to be saved, how to share their faith, how to read their Bible, how to pray. How to, the importance of church, getting in church, tithing, handling their money right, being pure. You're teaching those things over and over and over again. And I want to tell you, no matter what you do for a living, the most important aspect of any of our jobs and any of our leadership is spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is the most important leadership. That brings me to our third thing this evening. When we fail in spiritual leadership, it's a huge fail now and for eternity. When you look at the stakes, you look at the stakes of spiritual leadership, they're extremely high. I I want to say this. First of all, they're really and truly high here on this earth. I mean, just in how it, we'll see in a moment, how it affects people here, how it affects you and me here. But think about how high they are eternity. Now, I want to I pause and ask a rhetorical question that's not in my notes. Do you really and truly believe in hell? See, we're Baptist by our theology, and we're probably more conservative than 80% of the groups out there. But we're scared to talk about hell. We really believed in hell. You know what? We'd be doing everything we could to get people to church every Sunday and get them saved and baptized, wouldn't we? I want, I want to encourage you this week. Add that to your prayer time. Ask God to peel some of those layers off your head and your heart to help you understand that there is a heaven and there is a hell and that the stakes of spiritual leadership are so, so huge. This section began with Joshua, the great Joshua dying, and then it goes complete disaster. Let's pick it up. In, I'm just going to summarize verse 10 and 11 again. We won't read them, but it says the whole generation, the grandparents and the, 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 the parents died. There grew up a group that did not know the Lord. They did evil and served the veils. Let's go with verse 12 through 15. They forsook the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around them who were no longer, they were no longer able to resist him. And when Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them and they were in great distress. Wow. The Baals and the Asteros, God of the weather, God of fertility. 
You know, you've read this in the Old Testament a hundred times. We'll, we'll read it in Judges when it talks about him going to the high places. You heard that term before, the high places. It literally, the concept was you went to a higher place to worship these gods because these gods obviously were hard of hearing, so you had to get higher to the heavens for, for them to hear you. Part of Baal worship and Ashtaroth worship was sexual immorality. You're, you're trying to... Uh, incite the God of fertility. So part of the worship was prostitution and fornication and adultery. That's probably pretty popular to pagans, isn't it? And, and they were even as sick and as vile as to practice child sacrifice. Killing your own children in the fires is sacrifice to these false gods. And you wonder why God rejected them. When they pulled this nonsense and this wicked stuff. It says God's hand was off them. We've talked about that a couple of weeks. Folks, the worst thing that can happen to a person of God is for God's hand to be off you. The worst thing that can happen to our church or to your family is for God's hand to be off you. That means God's favor and God's power is not with us anymore. God's presence in a real powerful sense isn't with us. I want to read to you something. This is in a, a study Bible called the Archaeological Study Bible. Now listen, get this study Bible if you can get a chance. It's a great one, the Archaeology Study Bible. My recommendation is you get the large print because it's a big Bible. And if you get the regular size, the print's like this. You almost, if you're my age, you need a microscope to read it. Listen to what this study Bible says. Any distinct ethnicity of Jewish people is almost impossible to determine in Canaan from the year 1200 to 1000 B.C. As archaeologists have dug and looked during this time period, they cannot find any difference in the Jewish people and the pagans, because they were so intertwined together. Is that not incredible? The, the, the fail here was epic. I've seen Christians, I've seen young Christians who were truly saved, but I, for, for several years had never been discipled. And you know what? The, the, it, it's a tailspin. It's a disaster. The Christian life is tough, isn't it? And if you don't know what to expect, if you don't know how to grow in Christ, you are going to flounder. I've seen that for sure. But again, it, it, it gets past just what happens here. It gets into what's going to happen in eternity and long term here. Josh Lifeway did a, a survey several years ago with several thousand teenagers. No, it was teenagers. Didn't say necessarily they were, they were Christians. It was just teenagers that they interviewed and they asked the question, is a, a personal relationship with Jesus the only way to get to heaven? 72% said nope. 72% in America said no. You know what? That's a mom and daddy fail, isn't it? Sure, it may be a pastor fail. It may be a, a youth minister fail. But I want to tell you, mom and dad, the first person that's going to answer to God about your kids is not me. It's you. And then it'll be me and Josh. 72% of American kids don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. You know what's happened with a lot of us, I think, is that we've, got, we've gone into autopilot. That's probably what happened to the Israelites. They're busy. They've got so much to do that they just forgot to evangelize and disciple their own kids and grandkids. I had a friend who, uh, I have a friend 
who had a, he's a pastor, and he had a man in one of his churches who was a pilot for a major airline. And this guy, for several years, his gig was Los Angeles to Honolulu. Wouldn't that be a great flight pattern twice a week? And you tell your wife, I just got to stay over for business, you know, a couple of times a month. Uh, L.A. to Honolulu. He told my friend on one occasion, they are up in uh, the, the uh, high in the air over the Pacific Ocean. He's the pilot. He wakes up, and I don't know how many people are in this cockpit on this gigantic plane, but everyone in the cockpit is sound asleep. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> that makes you want to get up on a long flight occasionally just kick the door of the cockpit. Of course, now that would probably get you, uh, get you in a lot of trouble. But, y- you know, y- with an airplane, I guess... For some time, that's okay to be on autopilot. But a church can't be on autopilot. You can't be on autopilot as a parent. You can't be on autopilot as a Christian. You are, you are coming in contact with people every single day that you can influence for God. And many of us, again, we are more concerned about being popular or liked or cool than we are evangelizing and discipling. People are all around us are going to go to hell. And, and, and we're, we are not doing anything about that and people around us and under our influence who are Christians we are not being the kind of example and witness and intentionally discipling them to help them grow up in Christ and there's a reckoning for that if you're a grandparent I would tell you if you've got grandkids anywhere near here and your kids aren't going to bring them to church go get them Go get them. Just tell the parents, look, I know you're tired and you need rest. Can I go get your kids and bring them to church? Make sure that they know Christ. They grow up knowing the Lord. Because if we fail in spiritual leadership, the stakes are tremendously high. Let's go back to the Titanic. Titanic sets out on this voyage, 1912. Late April 14th, it hits an iceberg. You remember that beautiful ship we saw a moment ago? That's what it looked like on April 15th, about 3 o'clock in the morning. You read stuff, and there's a little discrepancy exactly how many people were on the ship and how many died, but it was at least 2,200 people and at least 1,500 died. 1,500 people died. And the terrible thing about that, it was completely avoidable. Captain Smith and a few of the leaders of the Titanic had been warned there's icebergs in the water. Slow down and stay on your toes. But they wanted to set a record from Great Britain to America on the unsinkable ship. And their leadership fell will live in infamy until Jesus comes back. If we don't do what we should do, and we can't do everything, but we can do everything that we can do, there's going to be carnage for eternity as a result of our failures. So here's what I want to challenge you this evening. First of all, if you are not a Christian, come this evening and give your life to Christ.
The right time is not next week or next month. The right time is tonight. Come and give your life to Christ. You're here and you're looking for a church to join. We would love for you to be a part of our church. If God's leading you to join our church, when we stand, you come. And Christian, whether it's where you're standing or whether you want to come to the altar and pray, what we need as a church and as individuals and as parents, we need to make a commitment to radical spiritual leadership because so much is at stake. Let's stand. And as we sing, please respond to God this evening.